All right, we're going to go ahead and get cranking. So, good morning, little flock. <clears throat> we are going to, um, if, you want, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And um, Matt ended up getting, I guess he said they had strep or something. I don't, I don't know. Sometimes guys just say that because they don't know what we really have. But it's probably that bad. But Second Thessalonians 1. But no, I hope they don't have strep. But um, anyway, but he's, he's not feeling well, so I'm going to do Sunday school this morning. And I've wanted to wrap up my section on judgment, and so that's what I'm going to do this morning. I'm going to go to two passages in particular that um, give us lots of content as we think through um, the second coming, the day of judgment, the fate of the wicked, those kinds of, those kinds of things. Because in our statement of faith, um, months ago we started to touch on the consequences of sin, and there are various different consequences of sin, but obviously the um, most significant one is the fact that the wicked will suffer eternal conscious punishment. And so I, <clears throat> I set out to show from the New Testament in specific um, this doctrine of eternal conscious punishment from various passages. I went through the Gospels, I went through Matthew, I went through places in Luke, um, didn't touch John much, but Matthew and Mark and Luke, they really have some of the most um, graphic and um, I guess they've got the most content about this topic. Um, <clears throat> and then there are a couple other places that are noteworthy in the New Testament that give us more content. And that is Second Thessalonians 1, which, we're, which is where we'll be today. And then also a couple passages in the Revelation of John. And so, um, so I would like to start looking at Second Thessalonians chapter 1. So we're going to be reading verses 6 through 10. Second Thessalonians 1, <clears throat> verses 6 through 10. Paul here wanting to comfort the saints in Thessalonica that were suffering persecution. And he says this in verse 6. We'll start in verse 5. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed. Let's pray. Father, we encounter these words this morning, and they are jarring. Um, Lord, jarring because, Lord, we, we don't experience very much suffering um, in our context. 
And we look at the Thessalonians suffering persecution for their faith. Um, and Lord, uh, we ask you to help us as we think through what we're, uh, the topic this morning, that this topic would spur us on to be faithful even if persecution comes. But Lord, this topic is also jarring because um, it just reminds us that one day history will be changed. Um, one day, Lord Jesus, you will split the heavens and come back not as, um, not in just some um, solitary uh, re- revelation, Lord, but you will be coming back with a whole host of angels and flaming fire and glory and majesty and power. And Lord, we, we ask you for, that you would forgive us for not taking this more seriously. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would forgive us of not um, keeping watch and staying alert. Um, Lord, as we, as we think about the second coming, as we think about the judgment of the wicked, uh, Lord, certainly our flesh doesn't like to listen to it. Lord, we, we'd rather be thinking about things that are more pleasant, things that are more lighthearted. Um, but Lord, the reality is, is that this is true. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to take it to heart, that it would shape our thinking, it would shape our minds, it would shape our praying, it would, it would inspire our witness. And, Lord, that we would be able to, with, with conviction, be able to speak to others in this way, that there is a day of judgment. There is, there is going to be a time where Jesus will personally audibly say, depart from me, to millions of people. And Lord, just pray that you'd help us to, to take that all to heart and live in light of it. And uh, give me clarity this morning. Give my brethren in here ears to hear. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the cross that, Lord, where the retributive justice that we deserved, Lord Jesus, you took. And and Lord, you didn't take it so that we could just be free and live how we want. Lord, you took it so that we would live lives of gratitude and joy before you and, and speak to others of this glorious news and help us to live to that end better as we consider these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, <clears throat> so I'm going to go to Second Thessalonians, then I'm going to cruise over to the Revelation, and these are sort of... Um, Mountain peak passages in the New Testament that deal with judgment. And so that's why I'm dealing with them. There are many others that could be mentioned. John 3, Romans 2, um, places in Peter, uh, Jude, those kinds of places. And I did touch on Jude a little bit, but these, the, these last couple here that I'll mention this morning are, are, fairly, um, are fairly significant in this discussion. So let's, let's make some observations on this passage in, in chapter 1, 6 through 10. The first one is, <clears throat> it's an obvious one, but... This is the second coming of Jesus. Paul says, When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. So there is coming a day when the Lord Jesus himself will personally, visibly return. He will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. That idea of revelation is he's there and yet he's hidden and one day he, he will be revealed. Sort of the, the cloak comes off and there he is. So don't think of Jesus 
in terms of the second coming as on a journey back and then all of a sudden he's here, think of him as hidden and one day will be revealed. He dwells right now in another dimension. And so he'll be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Over and over in the New Testament, we are reminded that Jesus will return. I mean, there's so much content on this. I was telling somebody the other day, I think there's more content on the second coming, or at least as much content on the second coming as there is on justification by faith, maybe even more. This is a big deal, the fact that Jesus is coming again. Jesus has a first coming, right? He has a first coming where he he comes into the world and um, there's a miraculous conception and birth and and he lives among us. And then as he lives among us, he dies, he rises, he now reigns with sovereign power on behalf of his church. He's there reigning, subduing nations, saving sinners, and bringing history to its completed end. And one day he'll leave that throne again and be manifest before the eyes of men. But this time, not as a little baby, not even as a resurrected man but in a display of absolute power and glory and with the host of heaven with a purpose to come and deal out retribution to the wicked. Old Testament, there's language of the day of the Lord. In some places, it's the day of slaughter. So I don't know what your view of Jesus is, but this perspective, this perception must be yours. You have to know he will come again. He will come again as a king. He will come again as a warrior and put every last enemy under his feet because the day of his wrath has come. And that's what's going on here. And it's interesting that Paul writes this to the Thessalonians to comfort them. He's writing this to comfort them, those that are in the throes of affliction and persecution. But what is the motivation what is the motivation and the context of his coming to destroy the wicked? When Jesus comes back and he's destroying the wicked, what do you want to call that? Well, justice. That's what you call that. You call that justice. And listen to the language. The language, is, the language of this passage drips with different terms all having to do with justice. Paul says this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment. There's the language of he will repay, the language of retribution, the language of paying the penalty. So all of this language has to deal with justice. When Jesus comes back, these people are getting what they deserve. We may not like to think that when we think about, you know, people that are nice but really don't follow the Lord, that that one day they are going to be punished by Christ. But according to the, the scriptures, this is exactly what they deserve. And it's exactly what we deserve, to be honest, right? I mean, we, we, our track record of sin is, is the same as everyone else. It's just there's one glaring difference, and that is we have an advocate. We have a substitute. We have someone who has taken our justice in himself, which is, I mean, absolutely breathtaking. But the reality is, is that when Jesus comes back and inflicts vengeance on the wicked, this is an, a spectacle or an exhibition a demonstration of God's justice. What, is, what does Paul mean here by plain indication of God's righteous judgment? That's what Paul says. These people are suffering, and as they're suffering persecution, Paul says this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment. 
Well, <clears throat> what he means by that is that the plain indication here is the persecution of these common believers by unbelievers. In other words, the affliction that comes upon these Christians is exhibit A, that these people deserve to be punished. They are stirred up by sin, stirred up by Satan, to squelch out and to stop the work of God. To get Christians to go private and, and, and be quiet. And these people are persecuting <laughs> believers. And Paul says that their persecution of believers is exhibit A. It is evidence of God's righteous judgment. Meaning that God is sovereign over these events and yet he takes them personally and God recognizes them and these things are worth punishment. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment. In other words, you've seen them persecute Christians and then you'll see how God judges them and you'll know that that judgment is just based on what they're doing. That's what Paul means, I think. <clears throat> I mean, and you think about this, how God takes this personally, Jesus takes this personally. I mean, Jesus from his own lips tells Paul, why are you persecuting me when Paul was persecuting believers in the early church? Think of Luke 18. There's a parable there that Jesus gives that was to teach to persevere in prayer, even when God doesn't immediately answer. The background of the prayer is one of desperation due to some kind of affliction or of suffering or great need. Listen to how Jesus ends the parable. This is Luke 18. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. Justice. God will bring about justice on behalf of his people. Jesus says, but however, when the Son of Man's will he find faith on the earth. That is, will he find people praying? <laughs> will he find people watching for him? So Jesus says that God is righteous. God hears the cries of his people. And from his perspective, he will come quickly. He says that he will bring about justice for them quickly. One day this will all seem like a distant memory and all will be put right. You know, you think about if there are any genuine Christians in Gaza or in Syria, which, I mean, we've got to think that there are. But think about that. All the genuine Christians in these places, they have no recourse but to wait, you know, until some miraculous intervention of liberation comes. But they can, they can endure, at least by knowing this, that Jesus will bring about justice for them quickly from his perspective. God hears them, and he will bring justice. So all those like Hamas or Hezbollah or Boko Haram and ISIS who kill and rape and torture human beings and Christians, they will have to stand before God and they will be justly condemned. And this, in some measure, is the comfort that is given to the church. <clears throat> As I've said before, right now, as we keep thinking about this idea of justice, you know, you look at the world, you look at the news, you listen to the radio, podcasts, whatever it is, the scales of justice are completely uneven in this world, right? The pile of injustice continues to pile to the heavens in idolatry and greed and murder and lying and immorality. 
But this text reminds us that one day God will say enough. And one by one, men and women, boys and girls, will give an account of what they've done in the body. And they will be tried according to absolute righteousness. Not the relative righteousness of men who err in their judgment so often, but perfect righteousness. No excuses, no ability to find loopholes. Justice. So God's judgment is righteous. Perfectly righteous. And so that's why I want you to, to get a sense of when Jesus comes back and brings punishment, it is justice. Well, who are those who receive God's justice and recompense? How are they described in Second Thessalonians 1? It says two things primarily, that they are those who do not know God, verse 8, and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, those who do not know God. Notice he doesn't say those who do not profess to know God. Right? I mean, there are many who profess to know God and don't. But no, this is about whether or not they really know him. Right? This is about those who, who really don't know God. Perhaps they claim to know God, but they just don't know him. Or perhaps they don't claim it and they clearly take a stand of not knowing him, not believing in him. But of course, God knows who they are. Not knowing God is a moral dilemma, right? It's not an intellectual dilemma. It's not because it doesn't make sense, right? It's not because it's confusing. It's moral. People should know God. People should love God. People should want God. People should follow God. That makes sense. Not knowing God, not wanting God, not following God, not worshiping God, not listening to God. None of that makes sense. So when Jesus comes back, he will come back to punish those who don't know God. And they don't know God, and that's a moral problem. That's their fault. Listen to what Paul says um, as he talks about this not knowing God or this ignorance of God. Listen to where he, he goes as he thinks about it. Paul says this in Ephesians 4. You don't have to turn there, just listen. So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. So he's telling these Christians, don't walk like the world. Well, like what, Paul? What does that mean? In the futility of their mind. Their mind concocting just empty pursuits. Oh, well, maybe life's about this, and maybe life's about that, and maybe we should be doing this, and maybe we should be doing that. Just the, the futility of their mind. Just lots, of, lots, of, lots and lots of thoughts, lots and lots of things coming from their mind, but all futile. All having no real tethering, no real anchoring in the Lord. Right? The futility of their mind. Being darkened in their understanding. Excluded from the life of God. Because of the ignorance that is in them. Because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. So notice, notice the progression. They walk in the futility of their minds. That is due to the darkness in their understanding. And that is due to not having the life of God within them. And that is due to not knowing God, an ignorance of God. And that is due to a hardness in their heart. 
And this hardness has led to utter callousness that yields a life of just fleshly desires and sensuality. In other words, there is an ignorance of God that is culpable. It comes from a hard heart that doesn't want to listen to God, doesn't want to follow God. There is this callousness, Paul points out here, to righteousness and an insensitivity to sin. It doesn't bother them. They laugh at it. They think it's funny. There's a callousness. You know. that, that's, that's when you know you're in a bad place. They love darkness, as Jesus says, rather than the light. People don't come to God because they don't want to. That's the bottom line. So in the end, these people, it's interesting here, these people who are persecuting these Thessalonians and people who persecute believers, they do so because they don't know God. You know, why do they do this? Well, they, they don't know Him. Jesus even says that, and I forgot to look up the passage, but speaking of those who are pursuing to kill Him and destroy Him, He says they do this because they do not know the Father nor me. Something like that. There's this, the, the ignorance of God causes them to live out this, this hatred toward his people. And they can't use the excuse, these who don't know God, they can't use the excuse there isn't enough revelation out there to prove God's existence, right? In Romans 1, Paul tells us there is no excuse. God has made it clear outside of us in creation and inside of us in conscience that he's all-powerful and wise and sin is judgment-worthy. So ultimately, again, not knowing God is criminal. And people think, well, you know, what about the people on the, you know, on the island? These people have never heard, you know. Gosh, if they could just hear. Well, I've been to these places. <laughs> and you go there and you begin to talk about the Lord and you begin to talk about the good news of the gospel. And, and guess what? Uh, not any of them, <laughs> hardly, were glad for it. And if they are glad for it, it's because God is there at work in them. But if God is not there at work in them, guess what? They hate you just like the person down the street when you knock on their door and you tell them they need to repent and come to Jesus. People are the same. They're lost not because they haven't heard the gospel, but they're lost because they love darkness. And that's who we were. But so they do not know God. And they do not obey the gospel of God, Paul says. Perhaps... The first group describes maybe the general category of all people outside of Christ, whether they've heard the gospel or not. And maybe this text directly addresses those who have heard and don't obey it or something like that. I don't know. But I know, as you read the Thessalonian letters, these Thessalonians were very vocal people. They loved to talk about the Lord, and so they would talk about Him a lot, and this is what brought persecution upon them. And these people that are persecuting are not obeying the gospel of God. And most of the time we talk about the gospel in terms of, what, of sharing the gospel. And this, of course, isn't bad. It's not bad to say that necessarily. But sharing by itself is not, does not really fundamentally communicate the real um, urgency, importance, and imperative nature of the gospel. What, I'm, what I mean by that is that we can't forget that fundamentally the gospel is a command from God that must be obeyed. <laughs> right? Jesus didn't say, time is fulfilled, kingdom of heaven is at hand, think about what I'm saying, give me a try. 
right? Consider this. He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And Paul says the same thing in Acts 17. The times of ignorance, therefore God overlooked, but now he commands men that they should all everywhere repent. God commands it. So that's, that's what we must say. That's what we must do. We must kindly, lovingly, gently, but clearly say, this is not an option. This is not something that just works for me, but it may or may not work for you. You must tell people God commands that you repent from your sin. That's a big deal. You're going to have to stand before him one day. And you must repent. You must come clean. God declares this. There's a day of judgment coming. And God will judge the impenitent with inflexible, strict justice through Jesus Christ. All right, and what's the motivation coming back for the righteous? So here's his motivation coming back for, and destroying the wicked is justice. And it comes upon those who do not know God and do not obey his gospel. And, but for the motivation of those coming back for the righteous, it's about relief, right? It's about relief. And that's what Paul says. Verse 7, to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven. What a relief one day to not have any more opposition. <laughs> what a relief to not hear of Christians being slaughtered. You know, what, what a relief. What a relief, you know, maybe for you. It's, it's you continually find yourself being alienate, alienated and ostracized from your family because of what you believe. I don't know what a relief it'll be when Jesus comes back and puts all that to naught. So that's his motivation coming back for the righteous. But one of the things we have to also highlight here is the second coming initiates a banishment of the wicked away from his presence into eternal destruction. And this is the latter part here, Second Thessalonians 1, says, rendering vengeance to them that know not God, to them that do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus, who shall suffer punishment, even eternal destruction from the face of the Lord and from the glory of his might, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at in all them that believed. So when Jesus comes back, there is this, there is this consignment to eternal destruction away from the face of the Lord in the glory of his might. So here the apostle tells us the ultimate fate of those who do not know God or obey his gospel. They shall suffer punishment. And eternal destruction is the description. Eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. Now, you guys remember I've been kind of touching on annihilationism a little bit. Annihilationism teaches that the wicked will go to hell, but they will be destroyed there. They will be annihilated, obliterated, on into extinction. Whereas the Bible teaches that on the contrary, the wicked will be there suffering eternal conscious punishment. Annihilationists will latch on to the language of destruction and say, that, that Paul mentions here, say, see, it's destroyed. That, that's what happens to them. They're, they're destroyed. That is, they're annihilated, right? I mean, that's what destroyed means. But you have to ask yourself, if this is true, why would Paul even have to use the language of eternal? Right? Why not just say destroyed? What is eternal about being destroyed? Being destroyed happens in a moment, in time. 
according to annihilationists. I mean, they think that you're punished, capital punishment style. At some point, after the day of judgment. Many of them will say that Paul says eternal here because even though the destruction happens at one time, yet the results are eternal. The results last forever. That is, you are destroyed and you are in that state of being destroyed forever. Um, And that's what Paul is saying. Um, If you'd like more on this point, you can listen to my last message on Matthew 25 where I talk about this whole idea of eternal punishment. But my point there in Matthew 25 with regard to eternal, it's the same here. Eternal is describing the nature of the destruction, not the results of the destruction. That's important. In other words, according to annihilationists, the eternal part happens after the execution of the wicked. They are destroyed and then that lasts eternally. In that sense, it's eternal destruction. But this is not what Jesus or Paul's meaning of eternal is as it describes judgment. Jesus and Paul have a fuller meaning of eternal in mind that conveys that the wicked suffer eternal punishment and destruction from the very minute they are banished from Jesus. And this is because eternal carries a quantitative element and also a qualitative element. Here's what I mean by that. This is, and, and this is how I can say that the wicked suffer eternal punishment from the beginning of their banishment. <laughs> because it, there's a qualitative sense of it and there's a quantitative sense of it. The judgment is qualitatively eternal because the judgment is final, full measure, undiluted, and unmixed. As John in the Revelation states it about God's wrath. It's God's personal, undiluted wrath with no prospect of joy or hope or ceasing. And it's quantitative in that it's, 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 it's that undiluted state of God's wrath experienced for forever. Therefore, the wicked suffer eternal destruction beginning with Jesus' terrifying words of depart from me and then on into eternity. And then, as far as the term destruction, just suffice it to say here that destroy does not convey utter loss or does not convey annihilation or extinction, but I think it better conveys the idea of utter loss and ruin, not of being, but of well-being. It is a life in utter shambles, devoid of all purpose, joy, and function. All right. Tough stuff, isn't it? But that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the reality of what happens to those who do not know God, those who do not obey the gospel of God, who we once were. And Paul gives this to the Thessalonians to comfort them, to remind them that this is right. And I mean, again, put yourself in the state of you know, this, this context where perhaps you're being carried off into prison, perhaps you're losing your whole livelihood, perhaps, you're, perhaps your children are being taken from you, perhaps your, your family members that believe in Christ are being killed. And these, these are th- this is the truth that causes the saints to remember that one day all of these wrongs will be put right. So Revelation 14. Revelation 14. <clears throat> Revelation 
give some of the most graphic imagery with regard to this topic. And I don't have hardly any time to develop, you know, a, a, a thorough interpretation of, like, explaining the, you know, the correct grid through which to interpret Revelation. But suffice it to say that the type of literature that it is is very symbolic. I mean, it's very clear um, when you begin to read it. <coughs> no matter what your stance is, you, can, you know it's symbolic, and I think that it's no different here in Revelation 14. And in Revelation 14, the context here is that the beast, sort of this, um, this henchman of the dragon, has come and he is plaguing mankind, oppressing mankind, deceiving mankind and eliciting worship from human beings. And so in Revelation 14, 9 through 11, not only the beast, but here those who worship the beast are judged. And this is what it says in 14, 9 through 11, Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here's the perseverance of the saints, who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And that little statement at the end there, here is the perseverance of the saints, means this is why you want to persevere. This is why it's a good idea to persevere and not give up. This is why it's a good idea to not go ahead and throw in the towel and start worshiping the world. This is why it's good to endure to the end. Why? Because of the judgment that awaits those who don't. This is why it says this is the perseverance of the saints. And it's also the perseverance of the saints to know that the beast and the false prophet and those who follow them will also be judged. But this is, the, this is one of the main reasons why we persevere, brethren. All right, so this, again, graphic language. Some of the most graphic in, in all of the, the New Testament. Well, here's, again, the revelation of Jesus, Right? You have the presence of the Lamb there judging those who worship the beast. The text says anyone worshiping the beast who has the mark on his forehead and on his hand. The beast here represents ungodly authorities in this world that draw men away from God and replace God. The text says in chap- back in chapter 13, 8, that all who dwell on the earth will worship him kind of a sweeping claim. We're talking really about everyone outside of Christ follows the beast. The influence of the beast is staggering. But it's all of these ungodly authorities in this world that draw men away from God and replace God. There's this universal allegiance to the beast by the world. By the way, just as an aside, the mark on the forehead and on the hand is not some electronic chip. Um, Revelation is not insinuating that. It's pretty clear that, especially if you read the Old Testament, the book of Ezekiel, the mark on the head and on the hands 
is a symbolic way of describing ownership, right? If you've got a branding or a mark on your forehead and on your hands, it's, it's talking about ownership. The beast owns you. Dragon owns you. It's on your head in that it governs your thinking, your course of life. And it's on your hands because it is there dictating what you do. Hmm. I don't know. I've never thought about that, but I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, some some symbol of ownership. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and then the, con- the, the, uh, the corollary to that is those who have the seal of God in the Revelation. Um, so those who are sealed by the Lamb and then those who are marked by the beast. And, um, but yeah, they are owned by the beast. They are aligned with the dragon. And so what will they experience? Well, the text says here that they drink the wine of the wrath of God in full strength. Full strength. I want to highlight that again because when I'm thinking about how we think about eternal punishment, we're thinking about punishment that is in full strength, no longer diluted, no longer with any mitigation. It's no longer temporary, no hope attached to it, no light at the end of the tunnel. It is full strength, and it is all unleashed here. And what does this undiluted, unmitigated anger of God produce? The text says torment. It says torment several times here. They will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And here again, you know, annihilationists will come to this and they'll say, see, fire consumes, you know, it'll consume you to ashes. This is, how they, this is what they say. They say, we believe that fire is doing what fire does. But I've said this over and over. When you look at the New Testament and you look at how Jesus uses the language of furnace of fire or fiery hell or the man that is in Hades, the rich man who is in Hades, the fire does not produce incineration. (laughs) The fire produces agony, weeping and gnashing of teeth. And here it's no different. The fire produces torment. And it's, it's tormented in the presence of the Holy angels and of the lamb and brimstone it's reminiscent of Sodom fire and brimstone from heaven on ungodliness there's a man named Preston Sprinkle sometimes he he writes for the gospel coalition he's got a podcast um, and he's somewhat common or somewhat popular but um, he is cited by a man named Chris Date who is a popular Um, proponent proponent of conditional immortality or annihilationism. And Chris Tate cites him because Chris Tate says, look, Preston Sprinkle believes in conditional immortality, and he's just one of many that do. And, And here's one of the things that Preston Sprinkle says about fire in the New Testament. Preston Sprinkle says this, As in the Old Testament, 
Fire in the New Testament judgment passages highlights destruction, not torment. The picture is one of total, final, irreversible destruction, not ongoing torment. And again, there is just that, that just baffles me that he would even say that. He has paid attention to one aspect and completely ignored what the Bible comments about that. <laughs> the Bible does not say the fire completely incinerates, but that it brings torment. This is a tormenting reality. Um, certainly it is there, and it brings pain. It brings a destruction in a sense, but not incineration. So, And again, just think of it here. Jesus is here presiding over hell. You know, common notions of the devil being the king of hell, they're completely obliterated by this passage. Jesus is there presiding over the punishment of the wicked. The wicked know that the punishment is coming from Jesus. And what is the duration of this torment? The revelation, revelation here tells us in verse 10 and 11, forever and ever. He says the smoke of their torment, again playing off the fire imagery here, goes up forever and forever and it's not just the smoke of their destruction goes up forever and ever it's the smoke of their torment it's their torment that is signaled in smoke going up forever and forever conditionalist might say well maybe it's just a memorial of when they were tormented and now they're destroyed that goes up forever and ever but John tells us so that we're not confused at all the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. You, you can't say it any more clearly. The rest that human beings long for, only given by Jesus, the wicked will never know. Day or night they will be tormented, and they will have no respite. No breaks, no mitigation. Forever. Revelation 14. Revelation 20, and then we're done. This is a little sweeter because it's speaking of Satan himself. Chapter 20, verse 10. Here's the picture of, of Satan himself destroyed. Verse 10, and the devil who deceived them, talking about deceived the, the world, Verse 10, chapter 20, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. And verse 15, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I'm sorry, back, in, sorry, back up in verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire here is speaking, spoken of as the second death. It is the death of death. It is the banishment away from Christ, banishment from God, in fire, in torment, forever and forever. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown there. So the devil, the beast, the false prophet, thrown in the lake of fire, tormented day and night, unceasing, unending, torment for Satan and his emissaries forever. And of course, Jesus says, 
to the wicked in Matthew 25 that don't serve the poor, that don't open their homes and their hearts and their pocketbooks, that they will also be thrown there with the devil and his angels. So this is sobering, brethren. So just some few application points. Beware of any teaching on this doctrine that alters the eternal conscious nature of the punishment. The doctrine of judgment has been questioned from the beginning. Satan himself says, you will not die. In my opinion, conditional mortality advocates, annihilationists, believe a version of that ancient lie, that you will not die. If you define death as the scriptures do, eternal conscious separation, which is the fullest depiction of death. John calls it the second death. I think their view has been influenced by Satan. I'm not saying all of them are following Satan, but I think their view distorts the doctrine of biblical death such that it can be said to the wicked in their view, you will not surely die. Not in the way the Bible depicts it. That is, you won't be thrown into the lake of fire to be justly tormented day and night forever and forever. There's one man that I was reading um, who's done a lot of thinking and defending of the doctrine of eternal punishment in light of annihilation and conditional mortality. And this is what he says. Could it be that the only result of attempts, however well-meaning, to air-condition hell is to ensure that more and more people wind up there? Read it again. Could it be that the only result of attempts, however well-meaning, to air-condition hell is to ensure that more and more people wind up there? You know, I was thinking about this, you know. Our, our sinful flesh looks for ways to minimize consequences. We, we, just, we just default there. The whole of Western society plunges further and further into sin in large part because the consciousness of God grows more and more faint. There's no question in my mind that softening the biblical doctrine of hell gives our flesh a way out of eternal punishment. You know, and lots of people go through life thinking, well, I'm just going to, you know, return to dust. And that makes them live a certain way, doesn't it? That, you know, YOLO, right? You only live once. Let's just eat, drink, and be merry. Turning to dust doesn't really bug them, but eternal conscious torment in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb probably would. And they need to recognize that, that you don't get out. You don't get out by having some God who will forgive you after the day of judgment or on the day of judgment, and you don't get out by being obliterated. But as I've said over and over and over, um, thinking about this topic, we cannot understate, or overstate, I should say, how amazing our salvation is. Again, we're just as guilty as everyone else being thrown in the lake of fire. Except for Christ. The perfect, spotless Lamb of God, bearing our sins in His body on the tree, takes our sins away, violently killed, on our behalf, taking God's wrath on Himself that we might be forgiven. What a relief. Um, it's a sufficient atonement, atonement. It's something that doesn't need to be done again. And it's something that works in the day of the Lord. Right? The Lord Jesus will say to His Father, These are mine. I have paid for them. Look at my scars. Right? Think of the blood shed. And we will not suffer along with the wicked. So I know this topic is heavy. 
Um, it's sobering. I've wanted to lay it on a little thick um, because we've never looked at it in a real focused way. Um, but I hope that it I hope that it jars you. I hope that it I hope that it does kind of wake you up, stir you up to the reality of what we need to be praying for and why we need to be speaking. Um, and the New Testament is crystal clear on this stuff. It is not that hard if you just read it. It's hard to swallow, but it's not hard to understand. It's really like anything. Doctrine of election, that's really not that hard. We know what election means. It's the hard part is swallowing it. But these kinds of things are test cases as to whether you'll really follow Jesus wherever he goes. Does our Lord Jesus teach on this? Well, then we must too. Because Jesus teaches the truth. He is the truth. So, anybody have a pertinent question or comment? Yeah, there will no be de- no more death as we know it. Yeah, I mean the saints won't die. We put on immortality, and so for us, yeah, there's no more death. Yeah, yeah, I know that conditional mortality people go to that, but I'm like, okay, but this is the second death. So, but yeah. Any other thoughts, questions, comments? All right. Well. You will enjoy Matt going on into the statement of faith with lots and lots of good news of redemption and mercy and grace. And uh, I hope this will enhance your love for Christ, your, yeah, your relief, your assurance, your rest in him that he has taken this out of the way. So let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for your grace in Jesus. Um, Lord, these things are intense. Um, but Lord, we know that they are true. And Lord, we ask you that this little church would never let go. Lord, you've told us that we must hold fast to your truth, hold fast the word of life, and, and Lord, proclaim the whole counsel of God. And Father, I just pray that, that this would be true of us, that we would proclaim the whole counsel of you. We would not shrink back in fear or shame, but we would hold it out because it is true, and it's what people need. And, um, and it's what our own souls need. We need to be reminded of what we were saved from. And so we thank you for that. Be with me as, as, a, we, as I bring the word in the service coming up. Be with the music, Lord, that you would just lift our spirits as we think about you, our great God and King. And, um, and Lord, just save sinners. Build your saints up. Grow us, speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen.